Hello, and welcome to another episode of City on a Hill, a podcast about what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the United States. We want to encourage Christians to find their tribe in the church and their hope in the kingdom of God, rather than to seek both in the kingdom of man. So with that, let's get to it today. Well, hello, I'm Eric Eastep. And I'm Scott Reevely. And this is the City on a Hill podcast. Welcome back, listeners. Welcome back, Scott. Scott, the... You're always so nice. You welcome me I, back here. I and try. I'm here every time. I try every time. And it's a little odd in the studio today because we actually have all the lights on and it's hospitable because we have a special guest. And Scott, why don't you introduce us to our special guest? Well, we are very happy to have Caitlin Chess here with us. Uh, Caitlin, I'm a big fan of Caitlin. I actually wanted to say that last year, we, Eric and I have reading goals and we talk about it and mm. all that. And I didn't make my goal last oh. year, <laughs> but I did read two of your books last year. Oh. So you were like leading the wow. whole list last year. So <laughs> anyway, that's kind of a big deal. I appreciate so, that. Anyway, it's nice to have you here. And in some respect, I do think you're a big deal and I'm glad you're talking to us. So thank you. Uh, her first book was The Liturgy of Politics, and we talked about that uh, when we uh, Zoomed with her before, but she's here today to talk about her second book, The Ballot and the Bible, and it addresses the intersection of the Bible and politics and how the Bible gets used in public life there. And that actually is probably as close to where I want to have conversations <laughs> as just about anything I can think of. So. Uh, I'm a little curious kind of why you started down the road of the, well, the ballot in the Bible, but mm -hmm. the way that the Bible is used in uh, public life. Yeah. I mean, honestly, part of it came out of, I had been spending the last few years of my life going to churches and Christian schools and, and talking to people about faith and politics based on my first book, The Liturgy of Politics. And I slowly realized that the, there were two really common questions I would get asked afterwards um, over and over again. The second most common was some kind of Bible verse, <laughs> just like <laughs> Romans 13. What mm. do you think about that? Oh, or give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. What, is, what does that mean? I've never heard that um, before. Yeah. <laughs> I'm preaching on that this week, actually. Oh, that, which one? Yeah. Uh, rendering to Caesar oh, the things that were Caesar's. That's yeah. fun. It is. Um, so I would just, yeah, whatever Bible verse people would come up with. Sometimes it was about certain policies, right? Like, doesn't this verse mean this oh, policy? Mm -hmm. And then the number one, easily the number one question would be people saying, how do I have a relationship with my grandma who thinks very differently about politics than me mm. or this person in my church or my pastor or my neighbor or, and I got to this place where I was realizing a lot of people were asking, and they were asking about relationships with other Christians. Right. Um, they actually found it easier sometimes to have relationships with people who disagreed with them politically but weren't Christians. It was fellow Christians they struggled with. And it looked, it seemed like people were looking for biblical language to describe their political commitments and trying to figure out how to have conversations about what scripture demanded of us politically. And I so I wanted to write a book about scripture and politics, but what I didn't want to do is um, give people examples that were so in the moment right now mm. that they couldn't really hear them. So the first chapter that I came up with that started the whole book was Romans 13. And I was like, okay, let's talk about Romans 13. If I start off with just let's, you know, get in the weeds about if Romans 13 applies to Black Lives Matter protests, if it applies to COVID restrictions, it'll be really hard for people to hear that because we're all heated in the moment about those questions. And so I thought, what if I 
asked some of these questions about scripture and politics, but through historical examples that helped us get a little bit of distance, helped us think about what kind of practices and habits do we inherit from our own country and Christians in our past, but also can I have a tangible example to wrestle with that isn't the thing I'm fighting with my grandma at the Thanksgiving table about? Most I have since learned there are a few people really fighting about some of these really old fights because people will come and tell me. Yeah, but for the are. most part, most of the things we're fighting about are the current political questions. Mm -hmm. And I hoped the history would help us still have something to hold on to, a tangible example to wrestle with, but not the kind of thing that was like currently becoming so contentious. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll tell you that one of the things, in fact, I reached out to you as soon as I saw it. I got the book, and the, she named her first chapter of her book <laughs> after our podcast. How's that? <laughs> yes, uh, actually, yep. because that's one of the more historical yeah. examples of yeah. the way the scripture is used. And um, so this is your chance to like speak into the city on a hill. And <laughs> how did the... Uh, In more ways than one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's true. But as, as far as that particular chapter goes yeah. and that particular thing, he, um, how did that influence sort of the way that Americans think about politics? Mm -hmm. So that was very influential, I think. Yeah. So a lot of people will, will point back to this 1630 piece of writing by John Winthrop, A Model of Christian Charity, where he gives tons of biblical references. He goes to Deuteronomy, he goes to New Testament passages, he goes to Revelation, but he also references Jesus's words, you will be like a city upon a hill. And what's interesting to me about this, about this history, it's a phrase I had heard growing up and mm -hmm. seen on you know social media posts and politicians reference it. And what I didn't know was if you weren't paying attention, you might think, okay, Winthrop says this in 1630, and then we just have an unbroken tradition of Christians and you know American leaders drawing on this image to describe our country. What's actually true is John Winthrop said that, and no one really paid a lot of attention to that particular part of a model of Christian charity. Except for us, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, but it was so common at the time for people to use tons of biblical language to describe right. their political lives that it wasn't like it was this really significant thing. And people didn't really draw on that language consistently throughout our history. It was really JFK used it once, and then it was Ronald Reagan who really mm -hmm. kind of used it a ton and turned it into the symbol that we have today that's really divorced from the biblical text. I mean, it's interesting that Hillary Clinton, during her campaign, said, we're still Reagan's shining city on a hill. So not mm -hmm. only is the adjective shining been added, which is not in the text. We like have, at, it's now the shining city on a hill, but now it's not even Jesus's city on a hill. It's Reagan's city right. on a hill oh. because it's just become so much a part of American kind of civic religion that we have this image that we can easily draw on. And Reagan in his farewell address finally said, you know, I should probably tell you what I mean by the shining city on a hill and says, it's, you know, this place of, of, you know, prosperous markets and people from all over the world want to come to this, you know, shining prosperous city, which is a pretty good example of how a biblical image situated in a particular context in the Sermon on the Mount with all of the other things Jesus is doing there has been so detached from that context and planted in a new one that Reagan can be like, I will explain to you what a shining city on a hill is without any reference mm. <laughs> to Isn't scripture. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so really in that scenario, I, I usually have it put put together in my mind, like we're, we're taking this from scripture and using it as an American analogy or something, but really it's just a, an illusion. Like a like like I would say, here's my Achilles heel, and let me explain to you what my Achilles heel is. Do you think it's that far divorced now, and the, the problem now is just we're reading it back in, or what would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those examples where 
it's easy, especially for a lot of Christians who are reevaluating what their faith means for their politics, to look at this as an example of, mm-hmm. well, he what Jesus wasn't talking about America. Like right. you have completely forgotten the context of what he's talking about. But I think the more insidious thing is not just Jesus wasn't talking about America, but that it has been so, as you just said, like put in a totally different context. Mm-hmm. That when we read the Sermon on the Mount and we see city on a hill, I think we import a lot of our assumptions about what a prosperous, good community looks like. Mm. And that's the thing that I think is a lot more insidious. Mm -hmm. It's pretty easy for people now to go, hey, that verse you quoted, it's about Israel. It's not about America. Or it's about the church. It's not about America. And that's important to recognize who is being addressed in Mm -hmm. Scripture. But I think the thing that's harder for us to realize that we have done is when scripture talks about what makes a good community or what makes a good person or what a good life looks like. And we import all of our ideas. Mm. In this case, Reagan described, like this is about economic prosperity and military might and uh, right. you know being a symbol of prosperity to the world. Whereas it's only a few verses before the shining city on a hill, or the, excuse me, the city on a hill in <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount, yeah, <laughs> that Jesus says, blessed are the meek and the persecuted mm-hmm. and, you know, and the poor in spirit. So I think the more concerning thing when it comes to how, to how certain passages have become so much a part of American civic discourse isn't just that we forget that it's not about us. It's that we manage to take these you know, phrases and images that are supposed to be really disruptive of what our normal life is like, mm-hmm. and instead say, actually, we're going to import our own ideas about right. what makes a good life into them. So, so, is, so is then it, Reagan becomes the uh, authoritative interpreter, not not on purpose, <laughs> but kind of as yeah. I'm reading, oh, yeah. I, I know what a city on a hill does and yeah. is, and now Jesus must be referring to that. Well, not actually. We need right. to <laughs> figure out another way to engage that. Yeah. Interesting. So I, I, I guess I'm thinking about you say import, but we re-import. Essentially, we mm, flip yeah. it and we come from Reagan's America back into our yes. church. And what's the church supposed to be like? Well, it's supposed to be prosperous and dominant and all the things that Reagan mm-hmm. said because mm-hmm. we know it's not really about America. Is that yeah. kind of what you're getting at? Is that it's we're going the wrong direction in some respect with that illusion? Yeah, and to, to your point, we can correct who we know is being talked about mm-hmm. without correcting the values that are implicit. And, and we go. can say, this yes. is really actually about the church. But if you still think a shining city on a hill is prosperity and strength, then, then you'll get the church wrong mm-hmm. too. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, what of the, all of the historical, besides city on the hill, of course, yeah. <laughs> what was the mo- what was your favorite chapter to work on? Mm. In other words, what was your favorite historical moment, maybe? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I really haven't stopped reading <laughs> abolitionists. Okay. Um, I I mean, I, I think I'm basically going to write a dissertation <laughs> about some of the folks that I started studying in this okay. book. And, and what I find so inspiring and helpful and discomforting about a lot of Christian interpreters of scripture, especially... Um, enslaved and free black Americans writing about slavery is that it's tempting nowadays because of the ways that scripture has been misused. And I see this a lot with some of my peers who came out of conservative churches and they've seen scripture, you know, be misused in political context. And they start to think maybe we should just separate these two realms entirely. Maybe the Bible should have nothing to do with Mm. politics. It's been so misused. It's just tricky. It's, um, it tempts us to kind of exert this power over people by quoting scripture. We just shouldn't do it. 
And then I looked to these abolitionists who were quoting scripture constantly. I mean, if you read David Walker's Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, there's times when I'm fairly confident he wasn't even trying to quote scripture. He just knew it so well, mm. it came mm. out of him. That was right. the language that he spoke. Um, Mariah Stewart, who I talk about in the book, just not only used so many biblical allusions, but managed to combine so well in a way that we often separate today, kind of personal morality and righteousness from communal and social justice. And she can't really pick one or the other. She's constantly going back and forth between these are the injustices in the world, the structural problems that we need to address. And also we need the Holy Spirit to make us righteous people. And we mm. need to pay attention to our families and what we're doing in our communities on a personal individual level. And it's just, you can tell the only way that you manage to really combine those so well is when you're reading the prophets because the prophets are doing that constantly. Right. So those are the people that I so enjoyed reading, and they're the people I still spend a lot of time thinking and talking about, partially because, you know, I'm teaching, you know, master's students now who are trying to figure out how to interpret scripture in their context, and just recently was in an Old Testament class where a bunch of students were like, yeah, I just don't think we should reference the Old Testament at all in politics. And I was mm -hmm. like, here are some people <laughs> who are doing it that I think you will admire with me, and how can we learn from them? How can we model their kind of witness in a way where scripture is not a tool or a weapon to use against other people for my own gain? It is something I'm really submitting myself to, but also I recognize that it has great meaning for the social context that I'm in. And for me to deny that out of fear of misusing it is strangely enough to like misuse it in a totally different way, to make it mm. entirely an individual or personal thing. Well, that's interesting. I wonder how much of that is because you are in a different context than we are. Mm. See, I don't, if you I mean you use quote scripture here in Oregon, it's not really going to be weaponized at all. It's going to be like, what, are, <laughs> why are you doing that? And uh. if that's the case, then I wonder, you know, maybe we would be tempted here to separate it for different reasons sure. than you would be. Yeah, don't but, want to freak anyone out. <laughs> right. But one of the things that I've noticed, and, and you allude to it several times in the book, I think, is just how Scripture is um, used as a signal yes, and not the substance of the Scripture, yes. like you were just talking about with these abolitionists, but the, the signal. And um, uh, anyway, I don't know if you could... Because this, this concerns me, because I see the signal being used yes. by football players after they score a touchdown yes. or <laughs> any, you know, and, and, and it's hard for us to really process what it means to really be a true Christian because yeah. we hear these signals sometimes. Yeah, it's funny. I almost answered your, your previous question with a different part of the book that is, I'm talking about it um, tomorrow with students, and I just think it's really fascinating, is the chapter that deals with um, the prayer breakfast speeches, the national prayer breakfast right. speeches of Bush and Obama. And one of the things I found when I was just comparing these, you know, they each have eight national prayer breakfast speeches from their two terms. Mm. It's an interesting comparison it because is. of like one president that had a very public reputation of Christianity, one president that spent most of his presidency trying to convince people he wasn't Muslim, um, Republican, Democrat, like there's all these great right. kind of parallels. They're very different presidents and used scripture and Christian language very differently, Bush mostly relied on identity. Mm. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna tell you my conversion story. I'm gonna tell you that I'm an mm. evangelical Christian. I'm gonna talk about reading the Bible. I won't get very specific. <laughs> I'll mostly just say, trust me, I am going to God for guidance. And people found comfort in that. Like they mm. wanna know their leaders are, are praying and reading scripture. 
Obama didn't really talk about a conversion story. Um, he would talk about how he became a Christian because he was doing community organizing with black churches in Chicago and finally got to the point where he realized, I need a community to go along with the kind of faith that I thought I had. So it's a very not a very evangelical story, whereas Bush can say literally that Billy Graham helped him right, <laughs> become a Christian. Right. You can't really beat that. Um, and Obama, I mean, he talked about scripture significantly more than Bush did. Bush never said the name of Jesus Christ in any of his eight national prayer breakfast speeches. Obama, in his second or first or second one, talked about the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, hmm. which is just surprising given their public right. reputations. But I also think what's interesting is Bush, while Bush relied on Christian identity and identifying with a certain community and saying, I'm like you, I'm an evangelical I'm Christian, you. I'm one of you. Right. Okay. Obama, partially because of the political party he's in, didn't do that very often. Instead, what he often did was say, we can't lose the moral language of our country. And the moral mm. language of our country is from scripture. And so he would talk about the abolitionists and the civil rights leaders, and he would talk about Dorothy Day or other people who sought social justice for distinctly Christian reasons. And, you know, you can have different opinions about the policies of these two people and the kind of record of their presidencies. I don't think either is exactly what I would want for a Christian in politics. But it is interesting that one said, I'm going to kind of show you I'm a Christian as sort of an identity thing. And the other said, I'm going to show you Christian language. Neither of them, I think, you know, have great records on, you know, scripture really robustly informed my policy necessarily. Right. Um, but both of them basically had different methods of getting to what has become important in American politics, which is show me you're the right kind of person or show me that you can appeal to the right kind of people. Well, see, I, that's... Yes, I think that is what's important. It's that signal. Yeah. And you you just tipped your hand. You didn't tip your hand, but you made me want to see what's in your hand. You said, <laughs> yeah, you said I uh, neither one really had what I want in mm. a politician. What, what would you want in a politician and their use of the scripture? Yeah, I mean, I think the issue I have with both of these approaches, which I don't think are entirely wrong, um, but both of them, there's a way in which Christianity, especially the revelation in scripture, is a tool um, to appeal to a certain group of people or to use moral language to make your claims appear weightier. Like, mm. trust right. me, this is serious moral stuff. You know, Put thus saith the Lord. To it or something. Yes. yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and what I think is interesting is, so in one of Obama's prayer breakfast speeches, he, got, he did get more specific. He, he really did draw on some scripture for some particular policy proposals when it came to um, foreign aid and when it came to some uh, welfare policies in the states. And there were some conservative commentators that just destroyed him for it, right? right. And one of their biggest things was scripture does not actually shape policy. Like we shouldn't draw a direct line from scripture to policy. And if, if you say it like that, I agree with them, right? Scripture doesn't have, you know, thus saith the Lord, the United States of America should do X, Y, Z. Okay. However, what I would prefer, and I would prefer this for people from all sorts of religious backgrounds, that we were really honest about the fact that we come to the policy conclusions that we come to for, you know, specifically religious reasons. So someone who can say, hey, you have a very different reason for supporting this immigration policy than I do. I come at it from the place of thinking that the Old Testament describes nations being judged by how they treat foreigners. And so I think it's really important mm. that our nation treat foreigners well. You might come at it just because you think immigrants are good for the economy <laughs> or right. whatever it yeah, is, right? right. Mm -hmm. But I want us to be honest 
about our very different, deeply held convictions about what kind of community humans should live in, what kind of creatures humans are, what's ultimately good in the world. And what bothers me about some of these other approaches is that it instrumentalizes scripture. It's Mm. good so far as it helps me identify with this community or give moral weight to my language. It's really a lot to ask (laughs) for a politician to say, I really want scripture to actually deeply inform the policies that you support. But in, if I'm going to give you the highest bar that I would have, <laughs> that <Okay>. would be it. <laughs> yeah, that would be very hard to do in public life. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's interesting. The other thing that made me think about all of these instances that you have in the book and things uh, was what kind of what kind of guidance would you give um, me, my parents, our listeners about how what we should, how we should understand scripture that appears to connect with public life. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what kind of uh, hermeneutic, uh, hermeneutical instruction or guidance should we have, do you think? Yeah. I think the first thing, and this relates to what I was just saying about there isn't a direct line. We have all the theological resources to think that because politics is contingent and temporal, Uh, We're fallen humans making the best decisions that we can, and and we want to leave open the possibility we'll discover that we were wrong, either about, you know, this certain value we hold or this goal we wanted to to meet, or about the best way to achieve that goal, right? Like, how many times in American history have there been policies that we thought would fix some problem and made them worse (laughs) or or introduced a new problem that we don't know how to deal with? So if, if in politics we're always dealing with contingent temporal things, We aren't saying, thus saith the Lord, ever. Um, We have to have the humility to say, I want to be honest about the values that I'm bringing and the things I'm concerned about, and they come from Scripture, and here's why. But I do want to be careful that I'm not drawing such a direct line that I'm putting a particular policy on the same level as my convictions about the revelation of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the Mm. death and resurrection of Christ. Um, And that can happen in a sneaky way. Um, but I also think, so there's that, that extreme, which is thus saith the Lord, the United States of America should do X, Y, Z. And then there's the other side, which says really scripture is about my personal spiritual life. And it doesn't say anything to my communal life. Um, I was just talking to someone recently about this, where they were asking about the immigration question. They were saying, you know, isn't that really a command for individuals to care for foreigners and to be hospitable? It's not really a command for a nation. And I said, I think what we have to make sure we're doing is on on one hand, we're not saying, okay, the law in the Old Testament gets directly pulled from the Old Testament and made United States federal law. But on the other hand, the Old Testament is describing God's desire for how a certain community will function well and an awareness of what kind of characteristic failures that community can have to function well. So we need to take those things into account when we're thinking about what policies we advocate for, not just for individuals to do, but for our community and how our community should function. Um, and, and I think that, that could apply for a bunch of different issues, Old and New Testament, et cetera. But trying to hold that line between those two extremes, I think, is, is the goal for most of our questions about Scripture. Wow, thank you. No, that's, uh, that doesn't sound like a very easy task, really. So that's good. Um, the, one of the things that's interesting, when in your, especially in your Bush and Obama comparison, mm-hmm. is that the, kind of the left and the right treat scriptures differently yes <laughs> is it do you think it's always with identity and always like they did with um i'm one of you and let yeah. me prove you by my language 
Yeah. Is it always that way or do you think it's? It really depends. I think it's changed throughout history. Um, I keep joking that if there's anything I've learned throughout this history, it's that we don't quote scripture more or less than we used to. We just quote more obscure passages in the past than we do now. Yes. (laughs) Um, People are just less biblically literate. (laughs) So now we're pretty much stuck with like, love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, some of the passages in the prayer breakfast speeches are very like the kind that you stick on Facebook. The greatest hits. The greatest hits, yes. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, one of my favorite examples of this is... The Curse of Moran. Yes. (laughs) In the Revolutionary War (laughs) era, people would say, among the, the revolutionaries, they would say... If you're not sufficiently on board with the revolution, we will say the curse of Miraz be against you, which apparently enough people knew what what that was from Deborah's song and judges to know that the curse of Miraz goes against this city Miraz that didn't come to Israel's aid in in battle. Yeah. So if you, there's no way anyone could say that today because we just have no I love that the three of us are chuckling about this because Uh, we did an episode on it because it was just so obscure. It's so weird. And all of our (laughs) listeners are going... That's in the Bible? Like, what are you right, even talking I about? Didn't, right. I, I didn't know it was in the Bible. Right. That's why I thought it was so funny. And I thought, I, she's going to say curse and mirage yep. because yep. I had no, I didn't even know what that was. I had to go, yeah. I had to go find it. Yeah. Anyway. You call yeah. yourself a preacher. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but that's really, I mean, I think those are some of the only things that have changed. Um, and the other thing I'll say is it hasn't always been exactly the identity language divide. Sometimes it is the kind of passages that we go to. I mean, this is always true, right? Like, we go to the passages that support the policies mm. we already want to believe. Right. Especially if it's instrumental in, right. in the use of the Bible. Right. And then I think the other part of it is um, who goes, who feels most comfortable going to direct commands, you know, um, mm. in First Peter, like, you know, obey the king. Okay. <laughs> Romans 13, you know, subject be subject to the governing authorities. And who goes to narrative and story mm. and says, let's find ourselves in this story. The example I give in the book is, um, similarly, in the revolutionary period, the people that would say, be subject to governing authority. That's a direct command. It's easy. It's straightforward. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Versus the people who would say, First Samuel 8, right? The people aren't supposed to want a king. They're supposed to let God judge them. Or, or you know, examples of corrupt kings right. um, who were kind of imaginative stories for people to live into and find themselves in. And that's something to pay attention to, too, is which of these are we most comfortable doing, the direct commands or the kind of narratives or stories? And even in that period, the same thing has been true. I mean, this is another thing that has been consistent throughout all of time is it's wild how many different times in our history you can find people in letters or sermons saying things that basically sound like Facebook posts today of, you know, we're the ones taking the Bible seriously. They really don't care about the Bible. Or we're the ones that are, I love there's this letter that a uh, revolutionary era loyalist priest wrote where he says, you know, our Anglican churches are filling up with people while the churches of the revolutionaries are dying because they're preaching politics and we're preaching the gospel. And I was like, that sounds like stuff that people say today, (laughs) you know? So we are consistent on those kinds of accusations against each other. (laughs) Of the things to be consistent about. That's (laughs) That's right. Good thing we picked that one. Exactly. So one of the things you said, uh, we are a Bible haunted nation, which I thought was, especially after everything you just said now, like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's just infused into everything, um, whether it's allusions or uh, just references, it's all over the place. And if, if we're trying to be careful and kind of pull ourselves out of, okay, America is not the city on a hill. um, We don't want to just cut and copy and use scripture that way. What, 
what scriptures um, should you look at and say, okay, we, we're not a special nation, but we're one of the nations for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Where would you be pointing in scripture and saying, actually, the nation should do X, Y, Z because the nation should do these things? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I actually, one of the few things that shows up in both of my books is this emphasis on both the prophecies against the nations in the Old Testament and the way that those prophecies are connected to the covenant with Noah in Genesis 9 mm. of, you know, this is the only covenant that's made, you know, after the after the garden with the whole of creation. Um, so the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, like we can go to those and learn things about human communities and who right. God is. and um, But we are not party to those covenants as mm-hmm. a nation. Um, but all of creation is party to the covenant, the Noahic covenant. And the Noahic covenant talks about humans being made in the image of God and judging humans based on their mistreatment of those made in the image of God. And then you'll notice that all of these prophecies against the nations do not hold the nations accountable to following Israel's law, but they do hold them accountable to these demands of the Noahic covenant. So I think that's important. And that goes back to this thing about how you treat foreigners. Like Mm -hmm. that's a theme in scripture, not just for Israel, but for other nations. It's something for us to take seriously. It's a reason why I think scripture should still be informing our political lives, Mm -hmm. even though so much of it is about the people of God and not about a particular earthly nation today. But another place I think is important is both Romans 13, which I joke about, like, I hate talking about Romans 13 because everyone always wants to talk about Romans 13. But over time, I feel like I'm being, you know, chastised by God for talking about how much I don't like Romans 13 because now I love Romans 13. <laughs> I think it's really grown on me. Um, and I do think there's, you know, not only is that an explicit doctrinal statement about human government outside of the church. Um, But I think it fits within a larger kind of theological theme throughout scripture of instructions to the people of God for how to live under other rulers. Mm. But unlike some of the other instructions, for example, like Jeremiah 29, the, you know, instructions to the captives, that those set of instructions are really for the people of God. There's nothing really in there about like what Babylon should do or how Babylon should think of itself. The instruction in Romans 13 includes now, now that the people of God are not a nation amongst other nations, now we actually have some description of what a ruler, what a nation should look like, how someone should be governed according to the authority they have. So I think that's a good place for us to think, okay, if, if governing authorities, as Paul describes, are supposed to punish those who do wrong and reward those that do right, that's a means of judging if governments are doing well. Mm-hmm. And similarly in Revelation, I won't get too far into Revelation because I could talk about that forever. And it's, you know, obviously complicated and kind of frightening. But there's a lot there about what, how nations should be judged and how nations are judged by God and the ways in which certain patterns of living in the nations has the potential to affect the people of God as well. Mm. And I think that's instructive for us when we think about our political configurations and commitments now as well. Yeah, that's good. And I think a you're talking, you have already talked about using scripture to inform and even explicitly tell people like I'm voting this way or, yeah. or I'm, I'm picturing a legislator, a legislator saying, I'm going to vote for this bill because, um, I believe people are made in the image of God. And now my posture towards, uh, immigrants or my posture towards yeah. foreigners is different than if I didn't assume that. Yeah. So would you say, cause there's, there's several steps there. Basically you're going to gain, um, gain a theology from scripture and then the ramifications of that are kind of downstream and then you evaluate policies based on whether uh, is this actually does this actually assume people are made in the image of god and if yeah. it doesn't then i can't support it and if it does then it's a uh, maybe imperfect way yes. but better than the alternative yeah is that I, I'm, I'm going back to another question but is that a 
would you want people kind of communicating that explicitly as like politicians like that? Mm. That would be the way to do that. Or that's just in the background and they're, they're doing through this rubric of evaluation yeah. before they were to support or not support something. Yeah, I think potentially both. Um, and I'm also thinking about not just elected officials, but Christians who are going, sure. I just, I'm trying to figure out who to vote for. Should and the we all do that? It'd be fantastic. Yeah, I would yeah. be great if we yeah. did that. But the thing about politicians, one of the reasons that I wish we were more explicit about this is partially because some politicians are. <laughs> There's mm. a lot of like waving around the flag of I am a Christian and I have Christian reasons for yes. doing things. Mm-hmm. And one thing I appreciate about Obama's presidency was that he basically said, like, let's not cede all of that ground to just this side of the political spectrum. Mm. Let's all talk about the Christian reasons we have for the things that we're doing. The other reason, though, I, you know, I have been involved in a lot of contexts in, in Durham, North Carolina, where I live now, where there's interfaith conversations that people want to have. And sometimes the assumption is to have a good interfaith conversation, we should kind of just focus on the things we all agree on. So we're all monotheistic religions, let's say. Like it's a bunch mm-hmm. of people who just have, okay, let's just focus on that. Or even if it's not, let's just all focus on the fact that we think we should be good people or that we have mm-hmm. a spiritual right. life. Or we, Those conversations don't usually go very well, actually, um, because we're avoiding the things that we actually all really care about and think are important and the differences we have that actually do make it challenging for us to agree on certain things. Um, so often when I'm thinking about my kind of ideal world of how we would talk about faith and politics, I tend to think both about the kind of world that I would want to live in, in terms of how I would want to be able to articulate my reasons for policies I want to support, but also the world I would want to live in for my next door neighbors, my literal next door neighbors, Muslim immigrant family. Mm. And I think about them a lot partially because I have the ability to go about the world and pretend if I want to, that I don't have religious reasons for the things I do or say. Like there's nothing physically about me that would just signal to you, she's a Christian and she has Christian reasons for the things she does. My next door neighbors, the women in that family have no choice but to go about the world and have people know that they have religious Mm. commitments that shape their life. They wear head coverings. It's very clear that that's a religious reason for that. And so I want to keep them in the forefront of my mind as well, not just how I want Christians to engage in politics, but the kind of political environment I want for religious minorities in our country Mm. who might not have the same ability that Christians have, where we can sort of pretend like we don't have commitments because our whole country has been shaped by some of those Christian commitments. Instead, I think we would be better served if I was honest with my neighbors and was honest in these interfaith meetings and was honest in city council meetings about, hey, I'm not going to pretend I care about these policies just because I think they're good or just because I woke up one day and decided on that or because I really think I have purely rational reasons for it. I really am going to be honest about the fact that it's coming from what I believe is the revelation of God to God's people. And I want my neighbors to show up to those meetings and say, we're supporting the things we're supporting for our deeply held beliefs about what God wants too. I think we'll have better conversations that Mm -hmm. way. I think we'll be able to better identify the places of common ground we actually have because we're not pretending we agree on everything. So we can be honest about the parts where we do agree. And I want to live in a world where my next door neighbors can, you know, be their full selves in public just like I can. Mm -hmm. Um, And we can kind of learn to live together in a really honest way and not just kind of a fake way where we pretend we're all the same. Mm. I appreciate you saying that. Again, I hear that as from a different place in Oregon. Yeah. It's like, I could say all I want and I just don't know that that's going to, people aren't even going to understand that. I don't think or respond to it. And I'm thinking about ways in which I can articulate my deeply held biblical perspective in secular terms. Mm -hmm. 
And that might not be the right way either. So anyway, I'm just trying to, yeah, I'm hearing yeah. you and I'm thinking this, uh, yeah, this girl from the South, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I wonder too if, you know, a lot of places that, places in America even where, you know, like you said, I live in the Bible Belt, like the conversations mm-hmm. are very different. And yet, I think there's lots of places in America and there's other places in Europe too that are having, I've been listening recently to Justin Barley's podcast, The um, Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, which I would highly recommend. It's a really well done podcast. And he is looking at, you know, what's happening with some of these kind of, you know, prominent atheists that are becoming Christians. But also part of what he identifies is there, there is a lot of spirituality in a lot of these countries. A lot of people who are interested in like pagan rituals or witchcraft or, or just spiritual, but not religious, which has always been a thing. But I do think increasingly, even if it's not Christianity, we are going to be in context where people are wanting to recognize that our life, including our public life, involves our spiritual life and that Mm. there are greater realities than just the kind of material world that we live in. And I think we're going to see, I mean, increasingly opportunities, even for people in places (laughs) like Portland, of, of ways in which people are open to at least spiritual and religious things being a part of the conversation. Mm. And I think what the failure would be for Christians would be as if we said, that's great. We'll also kind of use vaguely spiritual language instead of saying like, how do I open up space for you? How do I be hospitable to how you want to articulate what you believe? And also be honest about where I'm coming from, not as an act of imposition, which is how it can be received, which is right. why you have to be careful. And when careful. your privilege is in particular, yes. it comes across that way. Yes, right. but in a way that says, how can my means of being honest about where I'm coming from actually open up the space for you to do so instead of closing off the space for you to do so? Mm. Uh, yeah, I think the hospitable word was a really good yeah. word because I think that's the intent behind being hospitable would be to open it up for somebody instead of close it down. And and I think, pro- I mean, I'm, I am I don't know, but as I think about the, his, the history of the use of the Bible in politics, it's used largely to shut people down. Yeah. You know, and I, so I think that that little uh, uh, recommendation there at the end was really good that you talked about his hospitality. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I have one more. I probably have, I have lots of questions for you, but <laughs> but maybe one more that I'll ask here. And that is, you've been at this for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've written a couple books and um, I've you know been paying attention to you and what you're doing. Are you more optimistic now or less optimistic now about uh, Christians in uh, how they interact with mm-hmm. politics? That's an interesting question. Um, in some ways, I am more optimistic. I mean, in some ways, it was sort of inevitable I would be more optimistic when I started doing this. <laughs> it was coming from a pretty low place. So, um, <laughs> Any, anything's <laughs> an upgrade. There you go. Right. Right. I mean, I, oh, I yeah, I, I have a very strong memory of the morning of the 2016 election. First semester seminary student, me, just distraught over the state, the state of the American church. So I'm more optimistic than that. And I I think part of the reason I am is I'm around a lot of people constantly of all generations and backgrounds and parts of the country and who this was not just distressing to them. It was a catalyst for them to start thinking better about their political lives and what Mm. their faith means for that and what scripture says to that. And I'm not naive about all the ways that even that can go wrong. I see it all the time now, people who were really kind of prompted by 2016 to rethink things 
And instead of really evaluating, you know, the influences that were coming in and trying to, you know, chart a better path forward, some people have just found a new community instead of the old one to kind mm -hmm. of let them think for you and, and, and find your loyalty and community there. That's totally possible. But I also think how challenging all of these different forces are, the fact that we have, you know, this great pressure to secularize, but also Christians with a lot of political power who want to use Christianity as a tool for political power. All of that, as distressing as it is, I also think it's sort of a pressure cooker situation uh, where we, we use that term a lot, but we forget pressure cookers like make good food at the end. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I, I, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think it can be a strange, my, my, Doctoral supervisor often uses the phrase of a hot tub for how, you know, modern religious life is. It's like, it's not just these little distinct camps of different denominations. And it's like swirling waters of just different religious things that we're all living in it. It's and, not awkward. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, there can be some real creativity and thoughtfulness from mm. Christians in a world where there's a lot going on and there's some more opportunities for us to be thoughtful and and humble. I think it's good that some of us have been chastised a little bit mm. um, to recognize that there's ways that even in our best intentions, we can go really wrong. And that's the part of um, a lot of this that makes me hopeful is the people who didn't just learn the lessons of the last few presidential elections of, oh, don't believe these things or don't vote this way. But the people who learned hey, you can go in with really great intentions and somewhere along the way you can be captive to a political idol and you can find yourself making compromises mm. you never thought you would make. And what is required for me here and now, spiritual disciplines, community, et cetera, to ward off against those temptations. And being around people like that, that gives me a lot of hope. Mm. Well, one of our thoughts and concerns was to, you know, I had been negligent, I'll mm. just say, as a pastor, up until that point, well, even after that point, and realized in 2020 that I couldn't be negligent any longer mm. and, and engage. But I, I am noticing more people are willing to talk about it in decent you know, ways, have good conversations yeah. about it. The other pastors are that I see are trying to disciple their people yeah. politically, which is new. That's yeah. new. Yeah. And that, I suppose, gives me some level of hope as well. Yeah. And so I would probably say, even though we're probably staring at a repeat of the <laughs> previous election, uh -huh. that I would be m quite a bit more optimistic about how the church will do. See, that's, yeah. that's the thing I think that distressed me the most was how it yes. affected the church. And I know it did you too, but yeah. uh, seems like I, m my expectation is the church will do much better this time around. Yep. So that's what I'm hoping anyway. If I could ask one more question, uh, I want to do a practical question for our listeners specifically, but throughout this conversation, we've been talking about being careful with interpreting and then maybe mm -hmm. reading back in. In your book, you talk about um, being humble and in interpreting your Bibles and also examining the influences that shape your voting habits. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of challenge there. Uh, be humble and examine and um check yourself, uh, be be cautious, but what are some tools or practices you would say, okay, if I'm realizing I might have a problem, I, I need to I need to interpret my Bible differently or be careful yeah. about what I'm letting come in, what are some things you would say, practice these things or use these tools to allow you to begin to do that? Now you're asking her about her first book. Yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> Which that's is true, good. that's yeah, true. That's great. Um, you know, one thing I tell people a lot when it comes especially to Bible reading 
is I recommend reading more for longer chunks of time. Mm. I think a lot of us have learned that the way that you read your Bible is every single day for five minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, you have your daily quiet time. And that's a good thing, but some of us have grown up in church contexts where we took one way of reading scripture that's good, but one good way among many others and made it the thing. Like, this Mm. is how you become a good Christian. And I do think that can tend to teach us that this is how scripture works in little daily chunks, (laughs) like a vitamin. You just like Mm -hmm. pop every day and then you've done it and you're done. And that really, I think, harms how we think about scripture for politics because it increases the likelihood that our view of scripture and politics is cherry-picked verses pitted sure. against each other, right? That's how I'm reading the Bible every day. We'll just do that on Facebook or whatever. <laughs> um, if we sit down and read bigger chunks, not only do I think that's just a really good habit to mm-hmm. be in, a spiritually formative habit to be in, it also helps us say, okay, what is the larger story that's being told across, for example, all of Jeremiah, Right. Or all of Genesis. What's what is said about human communities and how they function? What is said about how God intervenes and what kind of character does God have and how does that shape how humans respond or should respond to Him? Those are questions that are harder. It's not impossible, but harder to ask of fifteen verses mm-hmm. or five verses that I just kind of read on a daily basis. So that's a practical thing. Of you know, I for this year, for example, I have read through the Bible in a year many years. This year, I decided we will read the Bible in a year, but instead of using a plan that gives me a chunk every day, I'm going to read a few Psalms every day, and then every Sunday I'll read a whole book, and it'll mm. just sit down one book, which is how we read books, yeah. <laughs> like how we read in general, right? Yes. That's you know. Most books in the Bible are basically like a chapter of mm-hmm. a big book you might be reading. So sit down and read it like that. Um, so that's a practical suggestion, as well as I think one of the things that has most shaped my understanding of scripture and especially of political theology has been reading Christians in other parts of the world and how they're using scripture mm-hmm. to, to kind of confront their political situation. A great example of this, um, Alan Buzak, who's a South African theologian, uh, wrote a commentary on Revelation. And he's someone who was involved in the struggle against apartheid. Mm. That's a great opportunity to not only read a great, it's a pretty short, accessible commentary on Revelation. So if Revelation scares you, <laughs> it's a good place to start. But it's also coming from a Christian in a very different time and place in the world who's asking how this applies, this kind of startling, dark story about you know human power and God's judgment and hope and restoration at the end. Mm. But it's him asking, what does that mean for the political struggle I'm in right now? from a position that no American has really held, right? He's like truly oppressed in his political context. His people have been systematically denied rights and economic ability. And and he's asking what revelation means for Mm -hmm. the context he's in. So that's an example or something like the Barman Declaration that German Christians wrote during the Mm -hmm. Nazi regime. Um, Very short theological document, but a good way to say, how were they thinking about what the truth of scripture means for their political context? And sometimes... You read people at other places and you just go, that can't be right. <laughs> and maybe it's not. Maybe they're wrong. But that experience of going, oh, I would never have thought that verse meant this thing or that that verse applied to this situation. Whether you end up thinking that that was a good interpretation or not, I think it is helpful to be sort of startled and mm-hmm. surprised by Scripture when it's become too comfortable or familiar to us. And it, at the very least, could help us ask some questions that maybe we didn't ask before. Right. That's one of the things that we've talked about here before is that they're really, you have two, you have two tools, you have time and you have space. Yes. And if you go to a different space, like you just said, some other place in the world, they are going to see it differently. If you go to some other time, which your whole book's been about history here, you go to another time, you're going to get a different look at it too. And and it's going to give you a better perspective on what you've got today. So uh, anyway, I just wanted to 
highlight, I guess, again, that yeah, yeah the time and space question is yeah. really a good one. Yeah. yeah. When it goes back to the beginning of the conversation where you were going to start with some stuff in the now, but then you pulled back. Yes. And it helps us evaluate. And maybe we do read something and go, I don't agree with that at all. Wait a second. Why do I think this about this right, particular right. passage? <laughs> that's, that's really helpful. Any, anything else? Um, if people want to follow you or want to buy the book or uh, <laughs> how would they find, find where you're at? Yeah, you can go to caitlinchess.com and you can find links to the books. You can buy the books pretty much anywhere that you buy books. Um, especially this one you can get um, from the Baker Bookhouse or from mm. the publisher's website directly. Um, and there's usually like a great discount there. Mm -hmm. So that might even be the cheapest place to buy it if you want. Um, and you also can on caitlinchess.com, I have some prayers and spiritual practices for an election season. I wrote them for 2020 but they will probably They'll be just as useful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. And we'll put, we'll put those in the show notes right. uh, as well. Well, thank you so much for being on here with us. And yeah. we're, we're glad to have had a conversation with you. Uh, listeners, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and rate us. If you find what we're doing helpful or if you would go a long way to getting this to other people and share it with a friend. If you have questions, send them to comment at cityonahillpodcast.com. And we look forward to the next conversation.